0: Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so enjoy the show!
1: Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being
2: a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about?
0: Hi, everybody. I'm Eric Arno, and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories Podcast Best of Five Years Edition. Holy crap, guys. We've been doing this show a long ass time. As you know, we do best of episodes at the end of every year, and those are voted on by our audience and listeners. But for this episode, I did something a little different. I went to the people who are responsible for making sure the show exists every month and asked them to tell me their favorite pieces of all time. So this episode, you're getting picks from me and the rest of the house band. That's Dwight Hassler, Claire Friedman, Jim Snedeker, and Becca Brown, plus Nerdalogs founder, Kevin Reader. Each of us chose a story that, for whatever reason, has stayed with us for the whole time we've been doing this show. Uh, these are really special pieces, and we hope you enjoy them as much as we do. Uh, but first, the music! We couldn't have a Best Of episode without including a couple songs. Uh, This first piece is, honest to God, probably the most difficult song we ever played, at least until our show at The Hideout that you'll hear in a couple weeks. Uh, And in rehearsals, we just didn't have it at all. It was kind of exhilarating playing it live, not sure if it would end up sounding like a total train wreck, and then somehow, mostly, getting there. Uh, The enthusiastic crowd helped a lot, so thank you to Peaches and Hot Sauce and your wonderful fans, and our wonderful fans, for carrying us through the rough bits in this song. Uh, This is from a September 2015 recording, themed Kids Again, where we played songs from the children of famous musicians, and of course, in that group, you have to include Wilson Phillips. So here's Hold On.
6: Change your life except for you. Don't ever let someone step all over you. Just open your heart and your mind. Is it really fair to feel this way wayside? Somebody, somebody gonna make you want to turn around and say goodbye. Till that baby, and you gotta let them hold you down. Go your way Day and you break free from the chains Yeah, I know that there is pain But you hold out for one more day And you break free, break from the chains Here we go Someday somebody's gonna take you wanna turn around and say goodbye Still and baby, when you come on up, hold it down and make you cry Don't you know, don't you know, things have changed Things are going your way If you hold And I I turn around and say goodbye <laughs> <Chill> them, <baby. laughs> I'm gonna let them hold it back make you cry There you go, there, there you go change,
0: Our first story today comes, appropriately, from a founding Nerdalogs member, Alex Talavera. This was Kevin's nomination. He told me that this story, quote, broke the mold for him. Alex has a way of telling stories that make you question reality a little bit. That was kind of his hallmark with the Nerdalogs, really, and this story is no exception. This particular recording comes from the second show we ever put to podcast in January 2012, which was recorded in front of maybe like five people in a classroom at the old I.O. on, uh, on Clark, because our regular venue had canceled on us that night with about an hour's notice. Oops. Um, they're closed now, P.S. This sound quality wasn't where it needed to be yet, but the feeling absolutely comes through in this piece, and here for your enjoyment is Crisis on Infinite Alexes.
1: I want to talk about um, quantum physics, uh, but to do that I have to tell you guys about uh, drug dealers, and, and to do that I have to explain that uh, in the late 90s I was... Uh, really into the West Coast rave scene. <laughs> um, uh, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know, I don't know, I have no, whatever. Uh, I got I got really into to raving and going to raves and I, I DJed for a while and all that stuff and I had uh, big pants and uh, pacifiers and all that shit. Um, anyway, one of the things about raves uh, and kind of like their... The virtue is that you you know you go and you you do a lot of drugs and you are super nice and friendly to every single person that you meet you know you just everyone is super outgoing and you shake hands and and everybody is friends uh, and so because of that uh, by virtue of being part of this culture I ended up being friends with a lot of drug dealers uh, and uh, one way or the other kind of ended up being tangentially. Um, uh, a part of the U.S.-Mexico drug trade. Now, <laughs> for those of you who uh, don't know what it's about or haven't seen The Wire or whatever, uh, it, drug dealing is. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. It's it's a pyramid scheme. It's it's basic, I mean, you could basically draw it as a pyramid scheme. At the top of the pyramid, there's really like five dudes, and they are, you know, that's Scarface, and they have uh, pet tigers and shit, and those guys make a lot of money. Uh, And then you go down the pyramid, and at the bottom of the pyramid, there's a thousand dudes, and uh, they don't make much money at all. And everyone is trying to rob and or kill you all the time. Like, that's it. Um, I didn't know anyone at the top. Yeah. Uh, In my two-year tenure doing drugs, I was shot at twice, uh, stabbed once. I got in two giant brawls uh, where thankfully no one was stabbed or shot, Um, and uh, I have been uh, robbed at gunpoint, robbed at knife point. I have reverse robbed a dude who robbed a friend of mine, and one time a guy that I'd just been introduced to uh, from my friend Martha uh, robbed everyone I knew, including Martha, but not me. (laughs) And to this day, I still don't know why. We never figured out, like, why I was exempt. Uh, he just, he robbed everyone and left me alone. Uh, later on, he got thrown out of a moving car on Interstate 10. There was a period of time uh, where I slept with a sawed-off shotgun under my mattress uh, because my mother received a death threat that was meant from my brother. Uh, the point of all of this is basically this. Uh, I should be dead. There is no reason that I should be sitting here right now telling this story. The odds of me being alive today are statistically negligible. So, uh, with that in mind, who has heard of uh, Schrödinger's cat? Okay, Schrödinger's cat. Uh, I'm just going to say it. So you guys all raise your hand. Uh, it's it's a thought experiment in quantum. In, in quantum theory basically it's saying uh, because of the chaotic order of the universe the idea is this you take a cat and you put it in a box and inside that box there's a, a vial of poison or something and the poison has a random release trigger 50-50 odds that it goes off uh, and kills the cat or does nothing right so you put the cat in there with the poison you close the lid and then uh, quantum theory says since you can't predict the outcome until you open the lid and look in there uh, the cat is both alive and dead at the same time. That's the actual nature of the universe. That shit doesn't make any sense. It's a paradox. They, they put it out there to make you be like, whoa, that's crazy. Uh, but then later on, some guy found a different reading of quantum theory. He basically says like this, um, you put the cat in the box, you close the lid, you don't know what's going on, the universe splits in two, and now there's two universes. And in one universe, the cat dies, and the other universe, it doesn't. And then, whichever universe the cat isn't dead in, I suppose, that's the universe that it goes on to, you know, fuck other cats or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So that's crazy shit, right? But that is also the only explanation for my being alive right now. The way I see it, there are a thousand universes where I am Dead. Dead is fried fucking chicken. Like, there's a universe where I don't sleep through a drive-by, and so I wake up and get shot in the head. Uh, there's a universe where we're getting robbed, and my friends, instead of shutting up, fuck around, and we all die. There's a universe where I overdose on an Indian reservation in Barstow, California, and my brother has to explain what happened to my mom. An infinity of corpses. But, also... Uh, an infinity of me's, sitting in this room telling this story. And an infinity of you's, uh, listening to it. And being, whoa, my mind's blown. Or, fuck this guy. Or, <laughs> whatever. Um, there's also a universe where I never got into drugs in the first place. And don't have this story to tell. There's a universe where the girl that I really... Loved in Japan but never said anything to I grow a pair and say something And maybe I'm still in Japan There's a universe where That kid That you should have stood up for that one time But you kept on walking You turn around and do something And then later on He's the best man at your wedding There's a universe where every choice you didn't make Happened And you don't have the same Joy or regret Or experience You do here. And I know that that's a really weird way of looking at the world, of thinking like everything that could happen uh, did happen somewhere. But it gives me uh, purpose and focus here because I should be dead for a thousand fucking reasons. Um, But I'm alive for at least one, right? And until I die, Any moment could be that reason. So, I'm here telling this story with you guys, and that could be it. So, thank you for sharing this moment with me. It's
0: why I am alive. One of the sure marks of a standout story is how memorable it is. That's how we got this next story, nominated by Jim as his favorite, He told me that this is the piece he ends up retelling people when he talks about this show. It comes from Chicago podcaster Eric Berry during a particularly experimental and cash strap part of his life, and it is, without a doubt, one of the funniest and most surprising pieces we've ever had on our show. This came from a 2015 episode featuring a number of different talents from the Chicago Podcast Co-op. Unfortunately, it's the only time Eric's ever done our show. Uh, We really ought to change that. But for now, enjoy Escort.
5: Uh, so I, I do I host a, po- a podcast called Full Disclosure It's a sex positive podcast And we deal with things like uh, Interviewing sex workers and BDSM demos Vibrator reviews All sorts of fun things like that uh, And people are like Well what makes you the authority on talking about Sex and dating and all that um, And the answer is a sound Idea That I had <laughs> Cheers <laughs> <laughs> um, years ago, so uh, I've sucked dick for money. Was that like a like a, a woo? Like we we support you, or a woo? Like we've been there, we're on team. Okay, Just, okay, okay. Either way, no judgment, guys. No judgment. Um, but uh, yeah, so I've, I've, I've sucked dick for money. Um, I should point out that uh, I'm not gay, and so you might be asking yourself, well, how is it that someone who's straight ends up uh, getting paid for gay sex, and the answer is, if you're a straight man, you tell yourself that you're going to get paid for having sex with women, And then you realize that women don't pay for sex and you change your business model. A lot of people, a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their mind around uh, a straight guy um, sucking a dick. But the thing is, like, if you've ever cooked a great steak, that doesn't make you a chef, you know? Right? right. No. To be fair, if we're gonna keep going with this metaphor, I've cooked hundreds of great steaks. Okay. Like you women in the audience, you think you know how to cook a steak. You have no idea how to cook a steak. Okay. Um so how did this how did this all happen? Um like any good story, I was uh I was 18, and my parents had just gotten a divorce, and my mom was just left in like financial ruin. And I was going to enter as a freshman into UC Berkeley. Um, and I had no way to pay for college. My mom didn't have any money, and my dad's a dick. And so I was left with, you know, I had to figure out how to do this. So I ended up working retail, and uh, I was working at the gap for eight dollars an hour. And it's just it's just fucking awful. We would get these like overnight shipments of, of clothes and cardigans and all that stuff. And we had to you know fold it and put it away. Um, so I was uh, working one night and I was on the ground um, folding like denim capris or something like that. And I thought there's got to be a better way to make money on my knees here. <laughs> and so I uh, the next day I, I went to my male sexuality class I was taking at Berkeley um, because. It's Berkeley, and of course that's a thing. And uh, I asked them, I said, does anybody know anything about becoming an escort? And one of them said, yeah, there's a section on Craigslist. It's now defunct, but it was called Erotic Services. And so, you know, I go home. And uh, I, I look into the Erotic Services section, and I make a posting. And they had advised me in the class, like, to keep my options open, I should probably post in, like, the Man for Men and Women So, I make the posting, and this is the headline. Uh, Just turned 18, UC Berkeley freshman, former football player, never been with a man. Now, if you had told me that it was possible to exceed your Gmail inbox's capacity, I wouldn't have believed you either. But apparently men on the internet like to introduce themselves by putting their best foot forward. And apparently their best foot is a high-resolution shot of their penis. And I don't know why you need, like, a 10-megapixel shot of your junk. I don't know what I'm supposed... Like, even if I had a printer, like, the first 10 pages just would have looked like color swatches, like if I was painting my room, like some pink shampoo. I don't know what why that has to be a thing. Um, But so I I, I look at one ad, or one response, and it's a married couple, and the wife had contacted me, and they were looking for a nude massage. And I thought, this would be a nice, comfortable way to kind of dip my toes into the the kiddie pool of prostitution, if you will. (laughs) So I respond... And she says, you know, uh, yeah, we would love for you to come over. Uh, they live in San Francisco. I'm in Berkeley. Um, and we'll pay you $200 an hour. And I'm like, I have definitely made the right life decision. <laughs> and... So I have to. This is like a month into college. I have to go and like tell all my new, you know, like the the, the sweet mates because I was afraid, you know, I might get murdered. You know, the trivial details. And so I go and I tell them like, hey, um, I'm gonna go do this thing where I'm gonna get paid to get naked with people, and they're we're all just new and freshmen, and they were like, oh, you guys, this must be like college is all about. Like we're adults yeah. now. And, yeah, cool. Hand me the the easy Mac and like, so. Uh, that was my safety net, and so I go, I get on, uh, on BART, and I take BART from, from Berkeley to San Francisco, and I get out, and the husband comes to pick me up. And so I get into the car, and I'm just terrified, I'm, I'm nervous as all hell, and I'm pretending that, like, I've done this nude massage thing before, like, I don't want him to know it's my first time, like, you know, like, I took, like, AP nude massage in high school or something, I just tested (laughs) out of that, and, uh, so we go, and we get to the apartment, and we walk in, and that is the moment that he says to me, Oh, by the way, the babysitter canceled, so my wife is with the kids. Oh and I'm like, fuck. Like, was there ever even a wife to begin with? But then the other part of me is like, I mean, good on them for not like having the kids at the apartment. You know, all that was happening. <laughs> So, uh, we go into the living room, and there is uh, a futon on the ground. And I don't know if he's, like, prepped that an hour before, if, like, that's just the permanent residence of that futon. Yeah. I don't know what happens in this apartment on the regular. But um, he asks me to undress. And I do, and he starts to undress. And, and um, I've never seen, like, a, like a naked man before. Um, oh, I should point out, I was also a virgin at this point. Um... <laughs> So he starts to undress, and there's a difference. When you're 18, you have a a boy's body. There's a difference between, like, like a a, a smooth 18-year-old boy's body and, like, this guy's in his late 30s. Like, just kind of like a a weathered, you know, (laughs) seen some, like, I don't know where that line between boy and man body begins. But as soon as, like, your chest hair connects with your facial hair, when that ceases to be, like, that's a safe Time to uh, uh, think that you've arrived. And so, um, so I, I don't know how to give him a saw. Like, like I'm fucking, you know, so I, I start to touch him. <laughs> and um, it's not actually that weird. It's as weird as spending two hours as an 18 year old massaging like a 38 year old could be. But nothing really more than that happened. <laughs> So I'm like, great! That was two hours, two hundred. That's four hundred bucks right there. That's amazing. That's awesome. You know, we're done with that. Great. So I go, I put my clothes on, and I'm standing by the doorway, and he uh, takes out his wallet, and he starts pulling out twenties, and it's one, two, three, four, five. And I'm like, uh, it was two hundred an hour. That should be four hundred dollars. That's a hundred dollars. He's like, oh, my wife didn't tell me that. And I'm like, okay, well, that was what she told me in this email exchange with your wife. And he's like, that's all the cash I have. I'm just like, fuck. And he sees the look on my face. He's like, hold on. I think I have something. And he runs back to his bedroom. He comes back out. 100% 100% true. He hands me three $5 coupons to In N Out.
6: <laughs> now,
5: am, am I proud that I just spent the last two hours rubbing down a naked man for $15 in In N Out coupons? No. But if you don't think I knew exactly where I was eating that night, you are wrong. Thank you guys so much. My name is Eric Craig.
0: I mentioned before on this show that in these first five years of podcasts, only one person has ever made me cry at the live show, and that person was Matt Young. Uh, this is Matt telling a story about his dog, Casey Jones, and it's the most touching piece I can think of in your story's history. This was from a really cool night in 2015 that we recorded at the Adler Planetarium as part of their Adler After Dark series. Um, Unlike most of our episodes, this recording comes off a venue soundboard, which is very fancy, so it might sound a little more distant than a lot of our pieces, uh, but man, it hit
2: hard. Kearney Calvin Halford, my maternal grandfather, was born on April 5th, 1916. He served in Korea. He had six children. He outlived three of them. On September 6, 1987, when I was almost 13 years old, he took his own life. Casey Jones was born early that same September. She was a boxer and the runt of the litter. She lived a full life, sleeping in the sun, tearing up Sears catalogs, and barking at the vacuum cleaner. I grew up in Decatur, Illinois, a town for which I never had much sentiment. It was around this time that my mother and father, who married when they were very young, were fighting a lot. One day in eighth grade social studies class, I decided I was going to ask them if I could go stay with Grandma and Grandpa Halford. I was unhappy. That same day, I remember seeing my mom in the car behind the bus on the way home from school. I remember sitting in the kitchen and learning about my grandfather's suicide. I remember going to my grandmother's house and playing with my cousins. I remember crying in her bathtub. A few weeks later, it was my 13th birthday. My parents were driving me out to someplace desolate. I was bored and didn't much care. We pulled into a driveway next to a shambles of a house in the middle of the country. I saw the dogs around their mother trying to nurse. I'm not really sure I knew the Broxer breed by name then, But my parents looked at me with this anticipation, having shown me that they've taken me here to get a dog, and I looked and I went, man, they are ugly. (laughs) We stood outside and I met the dogs. My dad negotiated with the breeder. I could have my pick. One of them, brindle-colored, was smaller than the rest. I noticed she would get pushed out and away as as the bigger dogs fed from their mother's teats. I knew which dog I was taking home. Casey was immediately named after my grandfather, Kearney Calvin, KC, as he often went by. I insisted that her last name be Jones, mostly because I'd heard of the poem, not because I liked it. I got annoyed with the vet for calling her Casey Young, as I would insist you can very easily see they were not related, and <laughs> she, she had her own last name. And I would dream of getting more dogs, Indiana Jones, Grace Jones. They would be the family that lived with my family. She was my dog, and I was her boy. And if you're not an only child like I am, this might not seem like that big of a deal, but the idea of being a boy and his dog, I mean, that had a magical quality that I felt my, my life was sorely lacking A true blue companion who would never let you down. I remember teaching her tricks. She could sit, lay down, speak, and if you went bang, she would fall over dead. And then she would immediately jump back up and expect a milk bone. I remember putting baby powder in her jowls to train her not to drool as much. I remember her sleeping by my legs late at night when I tried to stay up and catch Letterman. I played catch with her, I fought with her, I ran with her, I picked up her poop, and I fed her. It was all great, except the poop. Maybe a year or so after Casey came to live with us, things were still hard in my family. I struggled fitting in and finding my place at school. And after school on one occasion, I remember putting a plastic bag over my head, expecting to suffocate myself. Now, this was the most half-assed suicide attempt ever. I was in absolutely no danger whatsoever. (laughs) But I remember being sad and mad and, I don't know, just um, upset uh, at everything. But Casey came into the kitchen where I was standing with a bag on my head, (laughs) and she barked, and not a fun, playful bark, a concerned bark. Bark. An owner knows. It upset her to see me like that. I remember pulling the bag off and seeing her. She was mad and she was ready to bark again. I let her know it was okay. It's okay. It's okay. I was never in any real danger, but she saved me nonetheless. Pretty good for a run. In 1998, college was behind me. Decatur, Illinois was far, far behind me. I'd been living in Chicago for about a year and a half. I was finding my sea legs as an artist and a human adult. My dad called me on a cool fall morning. Casey had died. She apparently seemed shaky that morning, not uncommon for an 11-year-old boxer, old white face I had dubbed her in college, but she walked around the house over and over looking for something. The something, we concluded, was me. Eventually, she went into my room, got up on the bed, and passed away. Thank you for being there for me when nobody else was. Casey, I'm sorry I was not there for you.
0: When I asked Becca for her favorite stories, she gave me a two-fold answer, which was pretty appropriate in this circumstance. She picked pieces from Larissa Zagaris and Katie Johnston-Smith, who told essentially the same story from two different perspectives at a show recorded at a rented office space in conjunction with Breather this past year. In five years of shows, this is the only time that one story has been approached from multiple perspectives, which is kind of weird to think about, but it was really wonderful. Um, It's fascinating and a little sad at times to hear each of their perspectives on the ups and downs of their friendship, but it was really special for sure.
7: Uh, So I think a lot of us first learn how to love our friends and partners when we first start to love, love our friends and partners when we are moody teens. For me, the teenage years were also the time I first learned to love music. So much of the teenage years involved self-discovery by way of self-definition and self-proclamation. I love this, therefore I am this. Close friends, boyfriends, and say David Bowie, Morrissey, Belle and Sebastian, The Cures Album Show, gave me the blueprint to being myself when I was a teenager. I knew who I was because I loved what was me Writ large but small but large across the south suburban roads, I would endlessly terrorize with my best friend Jamie, the CD player I would mercilessly abuse with whatever emotionally charged glam rock or sad Brit pop I could find at the UCD store, the back seats I would fall in obsessive, gorgeous love in again and again and again. Being a teenager is a lot like being a toddler, only you have the added benefit of being able to French kiss and write Smashing Pumpkins lyrics and bubble letters on your backpack. <laughs> You are literally, for the first time, discovering your body does cool stuff in a conscious way. You are discovering your heart feels things in a conscious way. You are discovering music that no one has ever before discovered. And it's awesome in the truest sense of the word. And it's yours. And you're infinite. And everything you feel and love is yours, yours, yours for this moment and forever. And you breathe it, eat it, sleep it until you discover the next band or bestie or boyfriend. What is easy to forget about teenage land versus adult town is that discovery is not necessarily the be all end all of human love. Being endlessly, inextricably wrapped up in anyone or anything else is fun for a time, but after a while, you need to come up for air. Pointing at the ceiling. <laughs> uh, some points along the passing of the torch from the last generation of olds to the current one gathered in this room today. I think we have all confused the old teenage way of loving someone, breathlessly, consumptively, obsessively, with the right way of loving someone. Yes, we all culturally pay lip service to being our own person, keeping a balance in friendships and love relationships. But who out there among us doesn't feel a flush of yeah when we experience the punch drunk madness of being part of a squad, having a ride or die, finding true love? and abandoning that true love when you find an even truer love (laughs) that makes you feel ever more giddy and alive. I refer to this personally um, as the Lisa Frank stickerification of emotionally regressive and nihilistic Mad Maxi times. It is a self-destructive, self-limiting set of behaviors. I don't want the idealized way to love a friend or lover to be dictated by an idealized version of the way I did so in the 11th grade. But when I was 25-ish, I met a friend who made me feel like I felt about best friends in the 11th grade. And I was hella Lisa Frank Mad Maxi about it. She was my ride or die. She made me feel understood, defined, infinite, beautiful, powerful, unalone, known. And I think I did the same for her. We did everything together. I could list this forever, but for narrative, uh, ec- economy, everything. We ate, breathed, dreamed each other. We spent all of our time, all of our energy together. She was married. I was single. I wondered why it felt like we were kids, being best friends and having sleepovers, but I didn't care enough to investigate that feeling. It felt too good, having this perfect, no space, no breath friendship. We were one person. I never had to feel alone. Until she had an affair and then a divorce. And I knew almost every step and every slip, down the road to ruin she was running, and I tried to take on all I could until I just couldn't anymore, or wouldn't, and as much as I hated to admit it, she had taken on the human role of the Cure's show album, something I loved to death, but just didn't want to listen to anymore. I wasn't outright cruel about this, I was heartlessly cruel about this. I downshifted my role in her life—I'm going to cry—as she upshifted into a new group of friends I became alternately wildly jealous of and thankful for. I needed a break, but lacked the emotional wherewithal to say as much clearly. The silence and breath that had never existed between us began to last for hours, days, weeks, months, until a year and change had gone by and all I knew of her was gleaned from internet stalking, until all I shared of hers was the past. Until the truest mark of our ride or was me not talking as much shit about her as everyone else. Because I loved her more. And missed her more and needed her. Because part of me was her. Um, because as bullshit as obsessive friendship and love is, it is usually born out of a sense of finding your tribe. Someone who speaks your language. Someone who you get and who gets you who makes you better or makes you want to be. David Bowie doesn't stop being David Bowie just because you're tired of the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust. Katie hadn't stopped being Katie, and I hadn't stopped being me. What I had done in our year apart was grow. I learned what it was like to make new friends, less obsessively and more healthfully. I fell in love and out of it. I made so many mistakes. I had my own affair. I made so many bad calls. I learned what it was like to be abused. I learned what it was like to stop being abused. I learned what it was like to rebuild myself from scraps out in an emotional desert of my own making. I learned how to follow through on myself and create my own self-esteem, not tied to the love or brain of someone else. I learned what it was like to leave the nursery. It just took so very, very long. To pack up my little backpack of self-actualization and reflection, and to head back to Katie's for a sleepover party in our souls. When we finally reconnected, after our very long breather, (laughs) rebuilding our friendship, thank you, snaps, felt like brutally re-breaking a bone so it could knit together properly. I would like to see the set of Lisa Frank stickers for that. (laughs) I am better friends with Katie now, not because we are ride-or-die, bestie, sister, BFF, squad goals, till the end, bitches, but because we're our own people. Because instead of needing breathers, our relationship has breathing room. (laughs) Instead of nonstop conversation, we have meaningful ones. A lot of the time, they're about boys and UTIs. (laughs) of the time they're about our own separate goals and some shared ones one band I grew to love in as an adult has a song that goes be my head and I'll be yours I think of that lyric now a lot when I think about Katie What Katie and I share and even in a lot of my friendships or about love in general I like the sentiment you take a load off for a while and shoulder it for someone else they do the same for you when you need it but you can't be someone's head for them unless you keep your own You can only keep your own if you're less ride or die and more so ride alongside while both being alive and enjoying the experience along with a multitude of others. You can only do that if you know the complete blueprint to yourself is not locked up in one other person alone. It's scattered like the best used clothes and CDs (laughs) in bins and racks all over the damn place and you'll spend your whole life finding them. You can only be someone's head if you keep your own clear if you find the next grown-up way to love someone, and if you breathe.
4: I'm not a member of the 27 Club because I'm 29 and I'm still here, but a version of who I was when I was 27 is for sure Dead.
8: <laughs> and
4: this version of me lived in a world where working as the underpaid assistant to a narcissistic, misogynistic, <laughs> trust fund baby while completely ignoring the fact that my marriage was not as super solid as I pretended it to be it was like the best life I could live. <laughs> um, I lost my place. <laughs> All right. 27-year-old Katie also had three ride-or-die bitches I considered my best friends and we were creatively in sync and forged what felt like some deep and unbreakable bonds and I never truly felt like I had a lady crew and with those ladies I totally did and it was like some kind of magic however as I said before the version of 27 year old Katie is dead And I killed her. (laughs) And the killing of her also broke up the band. For those of you listening on the podcast, I just did hand air quotes like a true um, poet. (laughs) (laughs) I went through a hard time. My marriage ended, I left my job, and in certain circles of people in Chicago's small comedy slash theater community, I was not a popular person to know. During the time, that time, I needed my friends the most, and I felt like they abandoned me. So I spent a lonely summer walking dogs, making new friends, and making out with hot dudes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 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 I also spent a fair amount of time resenting my former ride-or-die bitches. I would see them post pictures on social media together at parties I was not invited to. I would read the creative things they collaborated on and stew because I was, in a way, I guess their jealous ex-girlfriend. As I was social media stalking them from afar, I noticed they stopped posting as many pictures together and stopped collaborating on as many things. It seemed like maybe we all kind of broke up and we lost each other and that it might have happened without me doing anything. Because I I guess that's what happens with adult friendships or any relationship, really. Either you grow together or you grow apart. Either it ends or it doesn't. Tools exist for those who have ended a romantic relationship. And society understands that, oh, yes, a romantic relationship has ended. You should mourn that. You should feel something. But if a friendship fails, how are we supposed to grieve? I'm glad I killed the 27-year-old version of myself. And I don't mourn her anymore. I've also realized that it is a lot to ask of anyone to stand by you while you self-destruct because people have their own shit to deal with. And just because someone isn't actively in your life for a little bit doesn't mean they'll be out of it forever. And Larissa mentioned to me today that she was listening to this song by the band Chicago um, a lot. (laughs) And so I listened to it too. And uh, here are some lyrics that really resonated with both of us. Everybody needs a little time away. I heard her say, from each other. Even lovers need a holiday. Far away from each other. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Um, that's a really like poetic segue for me to tell you the happy part of the story. Um, so, some of my lady squad has come back into my life over the past year, namely Larissa, and I've got to say the friendship is now stronger than it has ever been. There's a like she said a lot of UTI talk. Like like, I think we we talked today for probably an hour about UTIs because guess what everyone we both get them a lot. A lot. How is there that much to say about UTIs? There's a lot. 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 from the UTIs and like the, the um, boy jibber jabber, our friendship is a lot healthier because we know how to support each other both creatively and emotionally and like also by like really building each other's self-esteem up a lot because I will also say we're both a lot hotter than we were two years ago. <laughs> um, and time has given us perspective on ourselves and um we know now what we need from any sort of relationship or friendship whether that be romantic or with each other which is also romantic <laughs> um an adult women no don't need to be constantly like up each other's asses for their friendship to be valid and then um What I wrote is, I'll add more to this ending, probably, and I'm not going to. Okay, thank you.
0: (laughs) Claire's pick for favorite is really no surprise. This comes from a 2015 show where we teamed up with the wonderful Tanner Woodford and the Chicago Design Museum, although unlike other Design Museum episodes, this was recorded at our regular venue. The storyteller here is Tracy Hall, and she tells an incredibly thoughtful and touching story about her discovering the real Kwanzaa on a college trip to Africa. This is certainly one of the most memorable pieces to come from our show, and I'm really proud to present it here.
8: An activist academic during the post-civil rights um, black power movement um, named Marlena Karenga came up with the notion of an African-American holiday called Kwanzaa, meaning first fruits of the labor in 1966 as a way of creating a holiday rooted in the African tradition. Celebrated just after Christmas from December 26th to January 1st, by the time I became a young adult, this African-American holiday, Kwanzaa, had not only taken hold of African-American imagination, it had also taken hold of my African-American imaginary as a um, teen. It's based on seven principles. The first one, Umoja, which means unity. The second one, Kuji Chagulia, which means self-determination. I would later study Swahili, and the G is reflexive. So you can say, I cut myself. Niji kata. You know, it's like really important. You put that G in there, you did it to yourself. And I think that's (laughs) hot. What other languages do? what other languages do. Also, to say et cetera in Swahili, it's Nakadalika, Nakadalika, Nakadalika. So, you know, it's a hot language anyway. Um, Ujima, which means collective work and responsibility. Ujama, which means um, to build or cooperative economics. Nia, which means purpose. And then Kuumba, which means creative, creativity. And then finally, Imani, which is faith. All right. So now... um, I was really into Kwanzaa. I got into Kwanzaa because it seemed like all the hip and cool people around me were in Kwanzaa. They were like into it. As soon as like Christmas would come, they'd be like, oh good, that's over. Now we can celebrate Kwanzaa. So we were always doing stuff. Like we were having like Kwanzaa celebrations in the post office. Did you know that some of the postal workers would actually have the keys to the post office and go in and just make this whole Kwanzaa festival while the post office was closed for the holidays? I would be like, you know what? I don't think that's right. But it's cool. It's really, really cool. So I'm going to tell you what happened for me with Kwanzaa. So by the time I got to college, all I could think about was um, all the things I was interested in. But I was very interested and fascinated with the idea of Africa, anywhere in Africa. Africa has over 50 countries. I was like, anywhere, anywhere. So I signed up for my junior year bot. How many people did junior year bot? Right. And for how many people did that define you? It defined me. So I, you know, so I had this opportunity to go to Kenya and I'm going to study at the University of Nairobi. But most importantly it doesn't matter that I'm going to study in this great school where some of the great writers are or have sent their kids, Wale Shoyinka, Chinua Achebe's um, son, David, was there, um, and Gugi Wathiongo's son, um, whose um, name is like the opposite of his. It's like the Yungo which is very, very interesting. I was like, this is... Wonderful. I'm studying with and front and, um, with African, uh, intellectuals. But the most important thing is I'm in the, in the land of Kwanzaa. So I have this roommate, Anyango, and Anyango has all of the co- she's, um, now like a sales rep or something in Toronto. I saw her just the other, you know, not yeah. too long ago. So anyway, but at the time, they're the cool kids. You know, they read, they're into art and all this other stuff. And she has this really best friend named Sionzi. Sionzi lives in this small village. A village is Kijiji in um, Swahili. So, Sionzi, right around, you know, Christmas time, we're on break, and she says, Teresa, because no one could get my name Tracy, she says, Teresa, do you want to come home with me for harvest? What? Uh, Quanta? Somebody's inviting me home for an authentic Kwanzaa? Oh yes! I wanna, I don't even ask questions. She tells me what time she and her uncle are gonna come pick me up, and I just pack my suitcase. And I'm, you know, I'm from LA originally, and I like to bling. I like to bling real, real hard. Like, this is like, you know, I'm just in drag, like work drag. But I really like to bling. I like to bling real, real hard, like Lil Wayne you know bling bling every time I come around your city bling bling that's me I like to bling real hard so I have I'm packing all the most impractical clothes because it's going to be like seven days a week of Kwanzaa so I pack like this red dress it's all bling I I pack all my all my shoes are bling oh it's just amazing so we get in this car her uncle takes us and he's supposed to take us just um, to the outskirts of town where we're going to take what I think is another taxi and soon we'll be home oh it's hours oh it's hours up and down I think we went to Uganda. I don't know. We just kept going. Finally, by the time we get there, you know, okay, it's cool. And there's like a group of seven people. We would walk three more miles before we go to her small village. And okay, but it's Kwanzaa. So the first night, day one. No Kwanzaa. Her grandmother, who's like this really old wizened woman, asks, um, and they don't speak Swahili. They speak Kikuyu because they're Kikuyu in a whole other village. She says, ask her what she wants to eat. So I said, I, I don't know, you know, chicken, that's fine. And her grandmother says, tell her to catch the one she wants. <laughs> All right. By day two... Sionzi is getting me up really early in the morning is, you know, it's harvest. So I put on my red dress and I'm going to tell you really quickly what happened. I think her grandmother had looked at me and sized me up and said, Oh, Sionzi, you brought home a good one this time. I was working up a storm. They actually had a corn and bean, like maize and bean farm we cle- we had to harvest and i found out that really when she meant harvest when she said harvest that's what she meant We were picking for three days. Her grandmother, because I'm looking strong, her grandmother says, why don't you have her go up to this hill and bring home the, bring down the water? Because you know, again, there's no like, so I had to learn how to walk with one of those big jerry cans. And you know, one of the things I learned about my African sisters is the reason why they can roll those hips is because they have to. Because that's how you balance that water. (laughs) my clothes were destroyed. My shoes were destroyed. But I'm going to tell you about the last day. So we're getting ready to go back to university. I think I have lost weight by this time. My, no bling. I mean, really, I had these shoes with some rhinestone toes. Man, if you had seen those shoes, my goodness. But by the end of it, okay, they were very, very sad. And I left them there, actually. So that tells you what happened. But in any case, I remember the last night we had to go back um, to school. We are going to go back on that same journey. Her grandmother, who's kind of just um, keeping the, the hearth, you know, she's Not out there working, but she's directing everybody. Um, we're around the fire, all the fields, you know, we have been out there, and I really learned how important agriculture is and stamina. But um, her grandmother starts to sing, and her grandmother has the most amazing voice. And I don't understand what she's saying, but you could tell that everybody else in the family was really getting enlivened by the grandmother singing, and it's a song obviously that meant something to them. And at some point, After she had been sitting there, she gets up and she started. She starts dancing. And she has just enough energy to do her dance. And then her son, who has also come home, he joins his mother and he's dancing. And the look in their faces, and we were all weary and tired and working from sun up to sundown. Somehow in that dance and in that fire and in the loss of my bling, I realized what Kwanzaa really was. That it is about a harvest. A harvest of that flow of when you give and take, when you contribute um, to something that is bigger than you, that you might not just reap the benefits from directly, but that you really have been a contribution. And I knew that my bringing the water and my helping had really contributed to this family and that um, the reason why Sionzi had asked me home for the harvest is because they needed the help. And so now I really know what Kwanzaa is, and that was my discovery.
0: And sticking with the holiday theme, our final story of the night is a flashback to December 2012, when we recorded a really themeless episode at the Upstairs gallery that ended up being vaguely holiday-centric because it was December. Our very good friend Jonathan Lester told a wonderful story that night about his Jewish husband surreptitiously setting up a Christmas tree for him for their first ever Christmas together. It's such a lovely story, and the heart with which it's told ended up making it Dwight's favorite piece of all time. Uh, fun fact, I usually post this piece on the Nerdologs Facebook page every Christmas, but I skipped that this year because I knew you'd hear it a day later instead. So Merry belated Christmas and Happy Hanukkah,
3: everybody. So most of us in this room, I assume, uh, celebrated Christmas or celebrate Christmas now and have kind of grown up with an innate knowledge of Christmas traditions and have all their stories about growing up in a household with Christmas things and all the things that go along with that. Um, but my husband is actually not one of those. He is actually Jewish and has never had a Christmas before. Uh, and so Aww. this year um, we have a story uh, I like to call A Jew's Encounter with a Christmas Tree. <laughs> he wouldn't tell this story himself, so I felt the need to share this with everyone because it was amazing. Um, So, uh, as was mentioned, I was in Spain uh, for my job. I travel a lot, so uh, I was gone for the last month. (coughs) And uh, one Sunday night, I got an email from Kevin that said, uh, I would just want you to know I love you so much. And I was like, oh, that's really sweet. I responded. I was like, what prompted this? I was like, I love you too. And he goes, my head hurts so much right now, I can't even describe it. You don't understand the frustrations I would go through for you. And I went, wow, that's fucking dire. (laughs) So I, it's like 2 a.m. I call him. I'm like, what happened? And he's like, he's like, it's a surprise. I don't want to tell you, but he's terrible surprises. So I know eventually I figure this out. Um, so the next day I go in the office and I um I check my bank account like I do every day obsessively as a you know accountant. Um, and so I see this charge for about $200 at Target, and I'm like, mm-hmm, okay, what's that? So I, I send him an email. I'm like, okay, so what's this charge for $200 at Target? Because we share the credit card. And he goes, that's your surprise. <laughs> and I go, okay. I like, what is Target selling right now that he could have bought $200 of that would have frustrated him to hell and that would have shown his love for me? And it took me about 10 minutes to figure out on G Chat. I was like, you bought Christmas decorations, didn't you? And he goes, yes. But I didn't realize the extent of it until I got home. He just admitted that he bought Christmas decorations and he decorated our apartment. I got home last night and he made me wait in the hallway for ten minutes while I was really fucking jet-lagged. And so I was like, this better be good. Um, so he opens the door, he turned because he, he turned on the lights, and it was phenomenal. And the most impressive thing that was in there was a real, live, seven-foot-tall Christmas tree. Like, not a fake one. Like, there's no bullshit here. He went for the real one. He's dropping pine needles and everything. So... So I, I ask him, I'm, I say, how did you put up the Christmas tree by yourself? And he's like, well, first of all, um, I tried getting some help from someone else. Um, but the only way I could think to do so was to put an ad on Craigslist. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, the post has been now been deleted, so oh I cannot no. read it to you. But, oh but he had he shown me, me before what he had said um, on the Craigslist post, and so I'll paraphrase for you. And this was in the looking for hire section. It was not in misconnections or mail for mail or anything like that. <laughs> just so we're clear what the service provided would be. Um, so the ad, paraphrasing, said that help Jew trying to put up Christmas trees. I don't understand what, where it's supposed to go where. I will pay you in beer or cash or pizza. Please just come to my apartment and help me put up this tree. <laughs> And so, as those of you that have put up Christmas trees in the past know, the Christmas tree itself is an optical illusion. It requires at least three people, one person to hold the tree at a 90-degree angle, one person to screw it into the base, and one person to stand six feet away and say, no, that's an 88-degree angle. (laughs) Because somehow, in that six feet, there's an optical illusion where what is straight here is definitely not straight over here. And that is an hour-long argument in my household that involves a lot of the word fuck. So... (laughs) I walk in, and this tree, I didn't get a protractor out, but is straight up and down, and he did it by himself, screwing it into the base of the tree, and it is phenomenal. And not only that, he had gingerbread cookies set out and a gingerbread house, and had put up lights around our windows and put up stockings in our apartment. So I have to say that Christmas traditions, as we have them in our family, are born in many ways, and it's always great to start a new one. And I can't be happier that my Jewish husband figured out our own and started our great new traditions in our household. So Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays. That's my piece. Thank you.
0: And for our final song on The Best Of, I wanted to pay tribute to a couple of folks who just played their last shows with us, um, at least for a while. This is a rare Claire Friedman, Jim Snedeker solo moment from an August 2015 recording-themed fans. Somehow that led us to playing songs from Quentin Tarantino soundtracks. Um, I think because we rationalized that Quentin is such a fan of movies, and he's also a filmmaker, and so this is what a movie fan puts in his own films. Anyway, um, here Claire and Jim tackle the Nancy Sinatra classic Bang Bang, obviously a huge part of Kill Bill. Uh, It's really telling that Dwight and I both named this our favorite musical performance of all time on the show because it's something neither of us worked on. Um, This is basically a perfect performance, and I know we're all going to miss Claire and Jim. Uh, Hopefully you'll hear them again on the show someday soon, but we will always have Bang Bang. (laughs) ¶¶
9: My baby shot me down Seasons came and changed the time When I grew up I called him mine He would always laugh and say Remember when we used to play Bang, bang As For me the church bells rang Now he's gone I don't know why Until this day sometimes I cry He didn't even say goodbye He didn't take the time to lie Bang, bang
0: Your Stories is a proud part of the Chicago Podcast Co-op. If you enjoy Your Stories, you might also like making new friends. Each week, Pat invites new and old friends into a studio where anything can happen. Former guests include murderers, ghosts, milkmen, centaurs, and that nice fellow who lives down the street. For more information, go to peachesandhotsauce.com. This has been an production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome.
3: Thank you all. Thank you all. I am GrabBot23548X.